You're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. Uh, today we are looking at uh, part 5 in our Nicholas Meyer as an author series with Black Orchid, which is a book he co-wrote with Barry J. Kaplan. I'm Mike. I'm Max. And today we're joined by Matt of Literary Treks and the Orb. How's it going, Matt? Going really well. How are you guys doing? We're doing okay. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, oh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, you know, when we started doing all of these these books, I'm like, you know, a lot of these things like Black Orchid, it's like no one's ever heard of it or whatever. So I was like, hmm... I should get the, the 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 literary dude from the network to come <laughs> on and uh, and join us. So so thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. So for those people who aren't familiar, you want to tell them what literary treks is and the orb as well, but I guess literary treks in in particular. Of course, um, literary treks is our dedicated podcast on the network of Trek FM two. The literary world of Star Trek, whether that's in novel form, um, we also look at the comics as well. Um, we've looked at uh, the, you know, uh, I guess you could call it kind of faux history. We just interviewed David Goodman about his 150 years Federation book, which was really fascinating. Um, so we'll be looking as well at kind of the reference books that come out as well. Um, so trying to cover as much as possible there. You know, we don't get to do a lot of audiobooks. Those don't come out much these days. But just something that hadn't been done in the Trek universe. And we felt like it was missing and wanted to do something on it. And I love to read. And I really already read all the Trek books. And so thought, well, let's let's give this a shot and go for it. And it's been something that a lot of people have liked so far. So I'm really thankful for that. I think it's, I mean, in terms of like concepts for you know, Star Trek related podcasts, it seems like the one that seems most missing mm-hmm. until it came about. Because, I mean, like, there are tons of Star Trek books. And as a person who really likes Star Trek and looks at those books, I go, I do not want to pick up a random book and start reading it because some of those look really nuts. <laughs> like, I need somebody to read them and then say, okay, that one's good. Don't read that one. That one's boring. That's what I need. Well, and it's you're right. There's a lot of Star Trek books out there, and it can be very daunting. And uh, the way they're doing them now, they all are very interconnected. You don't have to read every book, um, but it's helpful when you do. And it's kind of more fun now, of course, when you do. It's, it's like if you were to just watch a little bit of one of the series and then jump to the next series. Um, it's more fulfilling if you watch the whole thing. And so they've done that with the books, and uh, it's made it enjoyable to read them. But you're right. There's been some really bad ones out there. Um, there's been some crazy ones. Uh, and so we do try to get a chance as well to talk to the authors and kind of pick their brains about why they were doing something or um, get a background on how they do it. And that's really interesting too. So that's been, I think, probably the highlight to me because I've been reading for a long time mm-hmm. and uh, getting to talk to the authors and see 
you know, how they were thinking about a story and why they did something with a character and what they even think about the characters or the series or anything like that is fascinating Um, because some of these writers, they've written for the shows, they tried to write for the shows. Um, So yeah, it's it's been such a blast and I'm really, really thankful to the Star Trek authors and that community for uh, embracing us and coming on to talk about their work because without them, uh, we wouldn't be a hit, I don't think. And you've also uh, started up a new show called The Orb, right? Which is a Deep Space Nine show? Yeah, we did. Um, Chris and I are huge Deep Space Nine fans. And uh, one of the things that's kind of been lacking out there when it comes to Deep Space Nine podcasts has been a dedicated show, not to just episode reviews or anything like that, but just really talking through the different issues and themes and characters and everything that goes into Deep Space Nine. And, um, you know, as being a fan of the show and it being my favorite and seeing how much depth there is to it and just kind of layers upon layers, uh, you know, peeling it back like an onion. And you can keep doing that with that show and it really keeps giving to you. Okay, so Matt, now seeing as how we're covering uh, Nicholas Meyer in this particular series, what are your thoughts on Nicholas Meyer's Star Trek movies? Star Trek 2, 4, and 6 specifically, I guess. Well, um, Six is my favorite film um, of all of them, and, uh, you know, Two is probably my second favorite, and so he's he's written and, and been a part of and directed my two favorite Star Trek movies, um, and I can't think of anybody who's done it better and really gets the character and the spirit of Star Trek, especially for somebody who doesn't necessarily care about Star Trek the way so many other people do. And I think that's really amazing. So today's book is Black Orchid, uh, which is Nicholas Meyer's fourth novel. Okay, well, here's a basic synopsis. Uh, In the late 19th century, Brazil has a monopoly on the rubber industry. And American explorer Harry Kincaid is hired by the British government to steal rubber seeds from Brazil so that they can grow their own rubber trees. You're making it sound really interesting, Mike. <laughs> Sorry. From the the from the the bird's eye view of this, it seems like it would make a really good sim game. <laughs> We're going to call it Rubber Barons. Yeah. I mean, I like I like when I was reading it, I was like I am much more interested in the economics here than I am in the story. Well, okay. So, Matt, what were your thoughts on the book in general? Well, you know, it, it took me a really, really long time to get into this book. And, and we're talking like two-thirds of the way through it to really all of a sudden it takes this very strange turn. Like it goes from being kind of a mindless story with way too much um, of that 70s mentality where we need to over-explain everything and give every single detail possible. It's like everybody had to try and beat Ian Fleming where they would give the exact name uh, and date of whatever, you know, Bond was drinking or all those kind of things. And they really pick up on this idea and try to kind of give him a Bondishness to him. But it's not exciting for so long. Okay, well, what about you, Max? What was your... Uh... Well, I was describing to this, you, you, this to you earlier about how this book was weird. Because, like, a hundred pages in, I was like... When is this story going to get going? And then another hundred pages in, I was like, is this the story? Is this what it is? And then 
like another hundred pages and the book was almost over and I was like I don't get why this is what's happening like I was saying to you it's it's kind of a, a gear shift movie and I was going to ask you on on like what you mean by that because I did not feel a gear shift it did not okay. seem to accelerate at any point I didn't I didn't feel it was going to reverse at any moment well it's divided into two parts you know and the first part is very sort of like like you're saying maneuvering getting pieces into place establishing who the players are in this world and, mm-hmm. and what the stakes are and everything like that and and it's going in, in such a way that that you know basically what what they're trying to do is um, steal rubber seeds so that they can plant their own trees mm-hmm. so that they're not dependent on uh, you know the the rubber barons in Brazil for their rubber. It's just it's just interesting that this very large scale political scheme involved the stealing of seeds. Oh, I know. That's well, the thing is like I, I'm reading this. And I'm like, you know, there's a lot of like actually parallels to like Indiana Jones going on here. And in the Temple of Doom. In yes, the Temple of it Doom. It reminds exactly. me of the Temple of Doom. In yeah. fact, his character reminds me of the Temple of Doom as well. Because, you know, Indy and the Temple of Doom is a very selfish, self-absorbed character who could care less about anybody else, honestly. Yeah. Um, and it's only in his later films he kind of grows as a character to care about other people this and is not my just thing. the this is my thing. prize that he's going after. Have you listened to the Temple of Doom commentary <laughs> recorded? Because that is exactly I... what I say, and everyone thinks I'm crazy. No, you're completely right on. What My point, though, is, is that the character learns. And so this mm-hmm. character right here... What's interesting is you think that, at least from the beginning, you think he's Indiana Jones from the Temple of Doom. Who he really is, it, by the end of the book, is Indiana Jones from the Last Crusade. Well, it's it's kind Ooh. of the it's the arc of Temple of Doom. Maybe a much creepier Indiana Jones. No, I mean, exactly. It is, it is, it is really creepy. The arc from Temple of Doom where he's in it for yeah. fortune and glory, he's in it for the money. And then he realizes that there's something more at stake. Yeah, but he still never stops being kind of unappealing and gross. Right. <laughs> well, maybe. Well, but yeah. in terms of the character's arc, you yeah. know, within within the you know unappealing and grossness, it's yeah. Well, uh, and it's... unfortunately, what happens here too is they are spending so much time setting up this chessboard in the beginning, so that all the pieces can move kind of very quickly by the end. Yeah. But the setup is so boring. I mean, it's it's worse than watching a chess game. Well, um, I mean, like I I don't know. I think I was uh, more. I, I thought more favorably of the book than than you guys did. I I'm not saying like I'm not I'm not gonna say that it was it was. I, I don't think that the pieces were boring necessarily. Like my problem was that like the there are a lot of pieces. I mean, in this that, particular board, mm-hmm. and none of, none of them seem very clear no i mean i i didn't have a problem with that i mean the big problem that i had with the book is 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 what matt was saying about it being overly descriptive and and stuff i mean there's a a good book in here that you know is about 50 pages shorter than 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 what we actually got you know i think maybe more description towards the end of the book and a lot less towards the beginning Perhaps. That might solve the problem. Perhaps. Because yeah, if it, the end of the book I, happens way too fast. It does. It happens really quickly. And some really, really weird things happen, too. Yes. I mean, just things I didn't really want to read about, but now they're always in my brain. <laughs> I don't know. Like, to me, in terms of it being a gear shift thing, like like, like I was saying, you know, it the first half of the book, part one. The is, first half? 
Well, okay. A little bit more than that. Yeah, part one of the book is this sort of, you know, all of these chess pieces coming into play and stuff like that. And, you know, it, there is a momentum. You know, you do think that it's going in a certain direction. And then... Do you? When, I do, yeah. And I then, didn't. And then when the, uh, the sort of, uh, I don't know, part two's inciting incident happens at the end of part one, um, it, it does change and then become a race, you know, a race down the Amazon. And I guess there's, there's, you always know that it is going to come into play at some point because they keep on making a big deal about the, the Amazon river? river itself. And I mean, even the first, you know, the, the prologue is just like, this is the Amazon river. It's going to mess you up, you know, and, and you don't, it's really... crystal skull, but backwards, they're going the opposite direction. <laughs> right. Yes. And, and you don't even really, uh, see, you know, they don't talk about it. You don't see it anything like that for, uh, the entire first part, and then it becomes the thing in in the second part. But I, I did like it um, on the whole. You know, once once I got I, it, I can't say that I really enjoyed reading it. But once I finished it, I was like, oh, you know, I'm I'm glad that I read it. That was an interesting story. That was an interesting uh, subject. The kind of social commentary that it was doing on the time period was was relatively interesting, and just not knowing. A, anything about this part of the world at that time and what was going on with um you know the way uh the natives were being used just basically as slaves and all that i thought that that was actually pretty interesting um and a good part of the story the the part that uh, um enabled me to kind of really get in and i i felt like when they finally went with that a little bit more I was more engaged with the story for sure. I didn't really know anything about the history, uh, you know, the real life history of, of this uh, this era in Brazil. Um, so I did some research, and by that I mean I went onto Wikipedia, um, if that counts. <laughs> but uh, just to give you know people a, sort of a a little bit of historical background as to the world that this takes place in. Um, this is a fictional story. You know, it's based on historical fact. Like, they they have a little thing at the beginning, at, at the very beginning of the book, where they say, like, look, we know that this isn't real. It's the disclaimer that care. you put in front of anything that's loosely based on real events. Right. He's. They say... Uh, I changed things around so that you can't sue me. That's the the end of the statement. Yeah, well, they also say, like, this isn't how events occurred. It's how we thought they should occur. But, uh, yeah, it, it, as far as what actually happened, you know, the, the Brazilian rubber boom lasted from 1879 to 1912, uh, where basically what happened was, you know, with the the introduction of automobiles and everything, the need for rubber wheels and, and all sorts of other stuff, you know, this is where the rubber was was naturally being grown and you know these people yeah. just cleaned up so rubber barons you know from europe and and elsewhere colonized brazil and just you know took over and and basically enslaved the indigenous population in order to harvest the rubber but i mean that's not that's the relationship is so ubiquitous throughout history i mean like it's i mean it's true of bananas well, yeah, I mean, but I, it got really bad at it this point. It got really bad everywhere. Well, sure. It's sure. still happening. Well, yeah. Shell is still actually doing these things today, <laughs> right now. Some tribe is being wiped out for oil. Now, the, the character of Kincaid is pretty much based on this guy named Henry Wickham, who was uh, an explorer. I think he was British. And he smuggled out 70,000 seeds from Brazil in... Uh, 1876 
<laughs> and they they you know they did this you know try they, making a spy movie out of that story well you know what's yeah funny i've got is, the seeds <laughs> the seeds for the plants that we're gonna grow yeah i stole those seeds for king and country well that's the funny thing i mean like when you see the he's you got this guy who's like indiana jones or james bond or whatever and like their big like undercover you know espionage mission is to run around a field in the middle of the night listening for popping and then run and, and pick up seeds and put them in dirt but wickham even his story which was true you know i guess he tried to play it up a, a lot more than uh what actually happened you know he he talked later on because it, it was it was a covert operation. He did smuggle out these seeds, mm-hmm. you know. But it was in 1876. This was actually three years before the rubber boom, and it wasn't illegal to uh, export seeds at that time. Right. So you know he did it, and he didn't draw attention to himself. He you know did it on the sly, but he wasn't doing anything illegal, and it probably wasn't that great of a feat. But later on, he didn't actually say that he did this until. After you know the the rubber plants were growing and wherever you know England had them growing, um, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I totally did that. I broke up the rubber monopoly, and it was a big deal, and blah blah blah." And you know, I guess historians have gone back and looked at it, and they're like, "It wasn't that big of a deal." You know, he he went in and did it, and you know, but it's not like it was some sort of great feat at the time. And uh, yeah, it just took you know, even though this happened before the rubber boom, it it took you know like thirty years or whatever for the rubber trees to grow to a point where they could actually utilize them. And by that so, point, we could synthesize it. Yeah. So, um, so so that's that's what Kincaid's character was. Take that, on. nature, <laughs> making our own rubber these days. <laughs> Look at we nature. We don't need you. So keep your trees in the Amazon. Oh, yeah, right. We don't need those trees. Ridiculous trees yeah. bouncing around into each other. So because they're made of rubber. Gotcha, gotcha. So Kincaid's character is based on Wickham, although obviously a much more uh, sensationalized version of him, I guess. If this is the sensationalized version. I hate to think how boring this real <laughs> dude was. So, um, in terms of where this fits into Meyer's career, it was published in 1977, which was a year after the West End Horror, and two years before his first movie, Time After Time. And so this was really like sort of the last book that he wrote before making the the jump into movies. Um, It was co-written by a guy named Barry J. Kaplan, who I haven't really been able to find out much info on it sounds like primarily he's a playwright. He has, he's written some, some novels, too. Um, he went to college with Meyer at the uh, University of Iowa, and that's where they, they knew each other from. I guess they were friends. And the only other thing that I know about him is that while he was at Iowa, he studied under Kurt Vonnegut Jr., as far as like stylistic differences between this and his other books, you know, this is the only book which isn't told in first person out of all of Meyer's novels, which I think you kind of need to do because of the the type of story that it is. There's so many sides, so many so many people which you're maneuvering that um he also he... kind of cheats a little bit here and there with the the, the narrative. I mean, cuz he well, does he does play fast and loose with the whole concept of first versus third person. Mhm. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's very much like looking at what the people are. Like he's ri- thinking. He, he has written third person narr- narratives, like uh, coming from a second person told to the first person. But it's definitely not 
at all like any of his other books in terms of, of the style. I'm wondering how much of an influence Kaplan had on that. Same thing with the description. You know, I mean, we talked about how it's, it's overly descriptive, and his other movies are not like that. His other movies? Movies? Books, movies? You books, said movies books twice. And movies. <laughs> <laughs> books and, and movies. This though. is like a recurring thing. It, it is a recurring thing, but he, he's, a, he's a really good editor. You know, he... He he knows how to pace a story, whether it's on film or or in a book, and I'm wondering how much of Kaplan's you know influence was there to sort of like bring it down to this level. I do think though you're you're definitely right because this doesn't fit in with especially what we know or see of him in Star Trek, where you know he. He edits and cuts things down to the bare minimum so you just get all the information you need without anything really extraneous. Yeah. This book is just full of extraneous things. And I think that's one of the things that surprised me in reading it because I was kind of expecting a tighter, kind of cleaner story. And that's not what happens. Right. right. I don't know. I mean, it would be interesting to see Kaplan's other work and see if, if it I more think, closely mimicked this or... I think that the, that the difference in style is probably a result of the content. I mean, like, this story would fit with this style better than the other way around. If this was written like one of his Sherlock Holmes pastiches, then it would be a very different thing. Like, those are very... They're essentially, like, structured around a sensational concept packaged in a banal title and and you know allowed for various weird little like entry points this doesn't have that this is much more along the lines of like you know an old school dense like monolithic like prose novel it's it establishes tons of texture characters world interactions connections and then it deals with you know the actions of an individual in that society that situation that world and the, the ramifications of that action. So, like, it's a distinctly different story structure than his other works. So you can't say that, like, the style is the difference. The style is the result of that story. The style also seemed to kind of fit a little bit of the kind of that time period that he's writing in, and in a way you kind of read, when you read a Ludlum novel, very overly descriptive. Um, and a lot of writers were doing that at that time period. And so it seems to just fit that, you know, 70s, 80s novel form. Yeah, I guess I hadn't really thought of that because I guess I haven't really read all that much stuff from that, that era. But I mean, what you were saying about, like, it being similar to Fleming, I could see that. Yeah, I mean, the difference is that I think Fleming is, like like you were inferring, I think, a, a lot better at it, you know, where... You know, it, it adds so much texture to the characters and everything and to the world um, when Fleming does that, whereas this is just um, extraneous detail. Well, and Fleming knows when to not do that. And he also felt like knew how to edit so that the books, I mean, Bond books are very short, uh, very short. And so, um, yeah, this just felt overly long because there's just too much detail. Yeah. I mean, just a few other like little weird things. It's his first uh, non-detective. Also, nothing to do with orchids. Nothing. Not not much to do with orchids. No. Yeah. Very misleading title. He loves misleading titles. Yeah. Yeah. Even even in his movies. Yeah. His next book is called Pictures of Your Mom Naked. <laughs> Although I I don't I don't I don't know if um, the Wrath of Khan was very misleading. Uh, yeah, that's true. But he wanted to call it the Undiscovered Country. Yeah. Ah. So. 
Well, I'm glad I finally got to do that because I think it fits better in six than it does with two. This is true. Yes. It still doesn't really seem to fit. Well, no, 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 no. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, because I'm going to defend this to my dying breath. The Undiscovered Country, the way it's used in the movie, takes that play off of, of Shakespeare, but they change Undiscovered Country from being death to being the unknown, the the thing that you're most fearful of. Well, we're most fearful of death, but in the Star Trek world, we're most fearful of giving up what we've done for so long, which is Kirk giving up his anger against the Klingons, the Klingons giving up their hatred towards the Federation. These are all things that are so fearful we'd almost rather continue on in wars we can't afford anymore and will kill us because it's so scary. It's as scary as death. It's the undiscovered country. So when you, I, I think it fits very well um, with the motif that um, Meyer is going for in that film of, you know, what Spock talks about. You're going to let go. You're going to uh, realize that the universe will unfold as it should. Um, you have faith. Uh, that's what that whole movie is about, and it's it's almost in some ways unStar Trekian if that's a term, because it's 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 a lot about having faith in the universe and that it should unfold and things should change and grow and be new, and that's the undiscovered country. Just one last thing here, you know, the the in terms of sort of bringing it back to to Star Trek, um, the 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 chase down the Amazon in, in part two of the book. Oh. A lot of similarities to Wrath of Khan, the the nebula battle in Wrath of Khan. You know, there was like the maneuvering, I, you know, the, outthinking your opponent. I mean, the the colonel was very similar to Khan in a lot of ways, and then it even start with a K sound. They they do, and 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 you know when when uh, Kincaid you know takes also his boat the into the. Uh, the, the marshy lands or whatever, you know, his, the, uh, the colonel's first officer is saying, like, we can't go in there. They, you know, our shields would be useless. And then he... That's what he says. He says, like, you know... That's full, the line that he uses. Full power ahead. And then mm-hmm. basically he... Scotty's like, I can't get that much power right. out of her. Yeah. And, and basically the colonel, Khan, mm-hmm. like, kills himself, destroys his, his bow, destroys his everything in the pursuit He detonates of, the Genesis seeds. Right. In, in pursuit for of... everything that they stand for, <laughs> yeah. yep, uncool. <laughs> uh, all, all in pursuit of of Kincaid, mm-hmm. Kirk. You know, yeah. Anyone also else starts that? with a K. No, I know what you're saying. Okay, it's, it's also it's crazy. I'm just saying. And, I'm and, not saying that like he, he was like, oh man, I'm going to use this thing from this book that no one read. I'm yeah. just saying that like <laughs> you know, it's there. There nobody there liked certain... it when it was in the Amazon, but no, maybe I mean, they'll like, like it when it's in space. Just, <laughs> just like when you're watching a Michael Bay movie and you see similarities, you know, like like the same a, shots used a yeah, few times. Yeah, just with Transformers digitally added to them, yeah. literally. But I mean, I can see it being the same sort of thing. You know, I mean. It, I don't know. What I see is is that it's um, conceptually difficult to imagine a naval battle in general. And considering that Star Trek has essentially naval battles in space, mm-hmm. if you've got a good idea for a naval battle, that's kind of a really bizarre thing to have in your head, period. <laughs> yeah. So you might end up using it more than once. That could be. That could be. I did notice, though, that Kincaid is facing some of the same issues that Kirk is in 2 and 6, that kind of idea of, of um, 
he's getting old um he's not really sure if he likes his life uh if he's good at it anymore if he's worthy of it anymore um, all those kind of issues kincaid deals with at the beginning of this book um and and just not having that unease of of age kind of taking away your vitality um and, and kincaid goes through that a couple of times in this book um especially when he's uh, tired out during some, shall we say, sexy times. And uh, he's he's disappointed because, you know, he used to be able to go all night. Uh, so some of these issues, you know, you get picked up with, with Kirk specifically, and especially Star Trek Two. Yeah, that's true. Well, King Kid gets a lot of that energy back when he hooks up with an extremely young girl. <laughs> that's As true. You Let's do. not talk about the blood. <laughs> Yes, I didn't bring it up. <laughs> Someone else did. So, any final thoughts on Black Orchid, Matt? Well, you know, I, I would say that if you are semi interested in seeing what Nicholas Meyer is like outside of his Star Trek work, I would probably, from listening to y'all. Um, I would stick with the Holmes books. Um, you know, if, if you're really interested and you kind of want to see a few things that remind you of Kirk or, or whatnot, you know, find it on Amazon for, you know, a few cents and, and pick it up. But otherwise, I, I don't know if it, it's worth somebody trying to seek out. Um, I, I just think it's too overly descriptive and the payoff at the end is just... It's just not quite worth it, especially of what I come to expect from Nicholas Meyer um, in, in his film work, uh, and obviously specifically Star Trek. Um, I, f- I feel like all of his films pay off very well. Um, you're, you're never upset that you've watched one of them. I could almost be sorry I might have read this book. <laughs> so what were your thoughts on it, Max? Um, for a book called Black Orchid, not nearly enough botany. I wanted to hear more about plants. There was a lot. I am lying. Okay. There was too much botany <laughs> in this book. But too, too much botany, not enough botany bay. Sorry. <laughs> I apologize. That is, you're a terrible person for that joke. No, I I'm hope sorry. that that was not recorded. It was recorded. I apologize. Okay, fine. Well, but yeah, I mean, I, like, this book, I, I don't want him to make a sequel to this. I don't want him to follow up. I don't want to see, you know, Kincaid goes on the Nile for an adventure where he steals sand seeds. He goes on the Yancey Kien. Are you sure you don't want to see that one? Um, the runabout? No, no, no. The river. I, I, yeah. I don't I don't particularly find that subject interesting. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed it. You know, I, I definitely think that so far out of the, the Meyer novels that we've read, this one is his, his worst but I still thought it was good. But if he did a series of these where Kincaid was like his Snake Plissken, mm-hmm. but specifically for stealing seeds. Yeah. Kind of awesome. I'd, I'd have to read at least one more. I mean, just to see what it was like, you know? <laughs> I mean, just to see what it was like. <laughs> <laughs> so, Matt, where, where can people uh, find you? Well, you can find me on uh, Trek FM. Of course, I also do the book reviews there, so you'll be able to find uh, my book reviews of um, usually the latest Star Trek novels at the beginning of the month, uh, usually the first or second week. Um, And then you can follow me on Twitter at MattRushing02. 
Um, and I don't usually mention this, but this is a different uh, place. And so I, I also have my own blog, which is just my own personal blog. And it's uh, 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Uh, and I just write about all sorts of different things there. Um, and so that's just kind of my personal place to be able to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Um, and so if you're interested, uh, let me know. Cool. That's good. I would just like to request um, you should do a absolute best of episode where you cover the best Star Trek novels because I would like to know that. I'd like to have a primer on that. So I do not have the fortitude to just venture into this world. Well, I will plug then. Um, Colin had us on Trek News and Fuse uh Back before Christmas, I think it was, uh, he had me and Michael Clark and Cena mm-hmm. from the Ten Forward podcast, and we did do that. We talked kind of um, the best of books, uh, so that's a good place to start. We kind of talked about some of our favorites. Was that literary holidays? Yeah, I think that's what Colin called the episode. Was yeah, that's literary what trying, holidays. Uh, yeah. yeah, I remember the name of the episode. Yeah, I remember so, the name of another person's episode. Good job. Excellent. Well, um, as always, you can find us uh, on our, our other podcast, CommentaryTrackStars.com, or you can find us on Twitter at ComTrackStars or email ComTrackStars at gmail.com. Oh, God. Or also, now, you can find all three of us on the new Trek.fm forums, which are... Uh, a fun place to hang out and give us feedback and talk about other things. So look for that on Trek.fm. Thank you very much for joining us again, Matt. Uh, thank you again very much for joining us, Matt. Thanks, and- Matt, for the joining of us. <laughs> I'm so glad that I could help you two join. Um, I'm going to go now and let y'all continue. <laughs> joining alone (laughs) we'll be back next week with part six in our look at nicholas meyer as an author where we cover confessions of a homing pigeon